Well, we've been uh, studying on Sunday nights a little bit some of the encounters that Jesus had with certain individuals. We've kind of entitled that Face to Face with Jesus. We started off with Nicodemus, and then we looked at the woman at the well in Samaria. The uh, official who came and begged Jesus to heal his son, and Jesus told him to go on, and the man took Jesus at his word. The lame man that was laying by the pool of Bethesda, and Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? Uh, and then healed him. And then last week, or a week before, like whenever it was, I guess it was last week, we did uh, Peter and uh, walking on the water and coming out to Jesus. Uh, and that incredible statement that Peter makes, if it is you, Lord, tell me to come out there too, which I don't think, I don't know about y'all, but I would have never said in a million years. And it's interesting because these encounters that Jesus has with these individuals, gives us an insight to how Jesus treated people and how he reacted and interacted with the people that he came across in his life. And that ought to mean something to us because we ought to try to emulate Jesus in our lives. And we ought to try to relate and interact with people as Jesus did. Now, we're not going to be able to heal people like tell the lame man to get up and walk or, or some of those things. But our reaction to them and how we feel about them and how we consider them is important. And so that's why we're kind of looking at this. Now we come now to John chapter 8 and the woman caught in adultery. Now I'm going to go ahead and start a disclaimer because some of you are liable to ask me afterwards if you're actually looking in your Bible and following along. Because you will see that the footnote at the bottom says that some of the more ancient texts don't have this included or have it somewhere else. And that's true. Uh, some of the older texts do not have this encounter here. Uh, some of them have it elsewhere in the book of John. Uh, some of them don't have it at all, actually. But when you put all the evidence together, and then when you think about these things, this story naturally flows in the gospel of John. It's very Johenian. You like that? I probably didn't even pronounce it right. But that means that it just sounds like John. It sounds like the other stories we've heard where John talks about the interactions Jesus had with people. It's also very Jesus-esque, is it not? I mean, it it just sounds like something Jesus would do. And then on top of all of that, there is nothing in this story that contradicts anything else in the Bible. You know, there's nothing that contradicts, you know, what we have at other places in the Bible. So I'm confident, me, that this story is legitimate and it belongs right where we have it within our New Testaments. So having said that, beginning in John chapter 8 and verse 2. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, 
in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What a powerful and compelling encounter that we have here. And you know, if we were doing this, you could actually do two kind of lessons on face-to-face or encounters with Jesus from this one. The first would be Jesus is having a face-to-face encounter with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right? And this also is one of the things that helps me to believe that this is, you know, valid and actually happened. Because how many times did the Pharisees and the teachers of the law do things to try to trap Jesus? This sounds very Pharisaical also, besides Johenian and Jesus-esque. Okay, you put all three of those together. It just sounds like something the Pharisees would do. But I kind of want us for a minute to forget about that. Forget about the fact that the Pharisees were bringing this woman to use as a trap. We understand that. It was, this is one of those no win situations, right? If Jesus said, yeah, stoner, whoo, it was going to be all kinds of problems. Because first of all, the Roman law said you couldn't take out uh, capital punishment. Thank you. That's exactly what I was looking for. That could only be done by the Roman government. Not only that, but even the Jews themselves had not done this for several hundred years. Actually stoned people, even though that's what the law of Moses said. So if Jesus had said stoner. That would have been brought him, you know, right into conflict with the Roman government and all kinds of things. And if Jesus had said, no, don't stone her. Oh, he's going against the law of Moses. He's teaching blasphemy. He's teaching, you know, against what the law of Moses says. Now, I don't know where this happens in regard chronologically with some of the other Times that Jesus was with. But you'd think they'd learn, the Pharisees. Jesus is not going to answer the question. He just asks them a question or makes a statement that has really nothing to do with the answer that they wanted. But I don't want to focus on that. I know we did a little bit, but that's not what we're going to focus on. We're not going to focus on whether or not the Pharisees had actually set this woman up as some scholars believe, that they actually had set him up knowing, or her up, knowing that they were going to be able to catch her in this predicament and bring her to Jesus. We're not even going to ask the question that ought to be asked, where's the man? It takes two. And it says in King James, caught in the very act, which means he had to be there. So why wasn't he brought 
as well. We're not going to talk about that. Okay? We're, we're, we're not going to talk about that. What I want us to focus on before we kind of, we haven't even gotten started, by the way. Okay, what I want us to focus on before we get started really is the woman was a sinner. The woman was a sinner. She was caught in the act of adultery. And at the very end of the story, you remember what Jesus says? Go and leave your life of sin. But you see, she represents all of us. Because we are all sinners. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. She actually represented each member of the crowd. When Jesus said, you who are without sin cast the first stone. And they all started walking away. That was an indictment on all of them, wasn't it? They all knew they had sin. Now, some of them, it may have been secret. Some of them, it may have been hidden. Some of them, nobody else may have known about, but they knew they had sin. They knew they were sinners, just like this woman. Now, they may have thought to themselves, like we do sometimes, well, my sin isn't that bad. My sin isn't that public. My sin isn't whatever. But there is a sense in which sin is sin. The Bible tells us that our sins and iniquities separate us from God. And it doesn't matter whether it's the little ones, what we call the little ones, or the big ones. Any sin separates us from God. Now, do some sins have greater consequences? Earthly consequences? Yes. But spiritually, they're the same. And so this woman clearly was a sinner. It's important to remember that one day we will all stand before God. And our sins will be exposed. Those that we have not, you know, have not been washed away by the blood of Jesus and through the grace of God. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment, Hebrews tells us. You have that great throne scene in Revelation where the books are going to be opened. And we must give an account of how we have lived our lives. We may fool each other. We may even fool ourselves. But we cannot fool God. God knows what is going on in our lives. So tonight I want us to look at Jesus' reaction to the sinful woman. And I've got a, got a little helper here. Just, yeah, just stand right there. That's good. The first point I want to make is that Jesus drew... The attention to himself. Now, first thing I want you to notice, if you notice from the reading, it says that they brought the woman to Jesus and made her stand. You know, I told you last week about trying to find a a picture of Peter actually walking on the water because all the pictures I saw were of Peter sinking. I tried to find a picture of Jesus and this woman. All of them had the woman at Jesus' feet. 
But it says that they made the woman stand. Why do you think that's that's so? Why would they make her stand? I think it was perhaps to prolong the embarrassment. You see, imagine being caught in that situation. Being drug out in the middle of a crowd and having to stand there. It'd be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it, if you were able to kind of get on the ground and duck your head? But she was standing there. And who was everybody looking at? They were looking at her. They were listening to Jesus. But they were looking at her. And how do you think she felt? Now, when I asked Deborah to do this, she said... First of all, I'm not an adulterous woman. I said, yeah, I know that. I understand that. That's not the point. The point is, is that Deborah has hasn't done anything, right? I just asked her to come up here and stand up here. And she's about to throw up. <laughs> right? Yeah. You should have seen her ever since I told her I wanted to do this. She's been down there getting sicker and sicker by the minute. Her face is turning red through the green. She is totally embarrassed. Because all of you are staring at her, right? You may not want to, but you are. You know me. You don't want to stare at me. You'd much rather look at her. I understand that. So everybody was focused on the woman. And then it says that Jesus got down and began to write in the ground. Now where's everybody's focus? Now everybody's focused on Jesus. What's what's he doing? What's what's he writing? What's going on there? And for just a brief moment, if the woman was looking, perhaps she didn't see any eyes on her. All the eyes were focused on the ground. If you can go without passing out, you can go now. I believe that's exactly why Jesus wrote on the ground. To take the focus, to take the attention off of her. He felt and understood what was going on with her. And the situation she was in and the humiliation that she was feeling. And so by stooping down and beginning to write on the ground, he took all the attention off of her and placed it on him. Lots of speculations, right? What? Was he writing? Some have said he was writing the Ten Commandments. Some say he was writing all the sins of the people in the crowd. If it was that important, they'd have told us. He could have been doodling. For all I know. Wouldn't have mattered. The point was the same. 
The attention now was on Jesus and not on the woman. What a beautiful metaphor for what Christ did at the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin so that we might become his righteousness. On the cross, all the attention, all the, all the focus, all the sin of the world was placed on Jesus so that it wouldn't be on us through the grace of God. Jesus paid it all, as we say. Jesus took it all on. I don't know. I, I, I believe this. I believe that's why while Jesus was on the cross, it says that darkness came over the land. Because I believe, I believe at that moment, Jesus represented and took on all the sins of the world, past, present and future. And God could not look on his son at that moment because of what he represented And what he was taking on. And when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe there there is a very real sense in which God the Father, for that brief moment, had turned his back on his son. Because that wasn't his son anymore. It was the sins of the world nailed to that cross. Jesus took all the focus. Jesus took all the attention at that moment. I like to pair that verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin so that we might become his righteousness. I like to pair that verse with a verse in Galatians that says those of us who have been baptized into Christ have clothed ourselves with Christ. We have put on Christ. You see, it's a switcheroo. When God looked at Jesus on the cross, what he saw was you and me and all of our sins. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, when we are buried with him in baptism, we put on Christ. We are clothed with Christ so that when God looks at me now, He doesn't see me. He sees Jesus. I like that. Because I don't want God to see me. I want him to see Jesus. And just like Jesus took the attention and the focus away from that woman, Jesus took the attention and focus of all the sins of the world. This is the ultimate example of hating the sin but not the sinner. Jesus never... I remember Norman saying this. Jesus never openly or publicly drew attention to a down and out sinner. The ones he always confronted. The ones that he drew out publicly. Were those holier than thou hypocritical Pharisees. The ones who thought they were all that. The ones who thought they were religious. Those who knew they were sinners, those who knew they kind of had a problem, Jesus didn't call them out. Now, he talked to them. He dealt with them like the woman at the well, 
like this woman here. But he didn't draw attention to them. This is almost the opposite of the story of the woman who'd been bleeding for years. Remember that? She comes up and she touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Now the woman had already been healed. There was really no seeming purpose of drawing attention to her. But Jesus did. But not to call her out for some sinful life. But to use her as an example of faith. Of great faith. So he did in that particular moment draw attention to that woman. To demonstrate faith. But here he takes the attention on himself. Jesus' purpose in coming was to take away our sins and draw the attention to ourselves. Secondly, Jesus did not condemn her. After the crowd had gone, she was not home free. Jesus still had the right and the authority to cast the first stone. Now, I wonder if the woman knew that. You know, Jesus had said, if you are without sin, throw the first stone. I wonder if she knew who Jesus was, even. I wonder if she knew that he was sinless. That he was perfect. And by his own standard, he had the authority and the right to throw the first stone. But he didn't. Many view God, he says to her, then neither do I condemn you. Many view God as a vengeful, vindictive God, always casting a condemning eye. Many view religion as a narrow-minded set of rules designed to condemn us or keep us from having fun. And while there is a vengeful side to God, there is a justice side to God. That is for those who reject what he has offered at such a great price. Jesus himself said in the conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. It was never Jesus' purpose to condemn anyone, but to bring life and salvation to everyone. However, that life does come through faith and belief. And it's important for us to remember as the body of Christ, as his representation here on earth, that it is not our purpose to condemn people, but to bring the saving message of the gospel to all who will listen. Recognizing sin is important. And yes, we may have to help others feel convicted of their sins. But not to condemn them, but to offer them the salvation that Jesus gave his life for. Thirdly, Jesus challenged her to live a better life. She looked around and saw that the crowd was gone. And she must have breathed a sigh of relief. She must have felt like an absolute burden had been lifted from her. She had escaped. She'd gotten let off the hook. Don't you imagine 
that as they drug her out of the house and they bring her in front of Jesus and they say the law says we should stone her. Do you think there was that moment where she thought, this is it? This is it? They're going to stone me. They're going to kill me. I think she felt that way. I think she thought that. And now, everybody's gone. Except Jesus. And then Jesus challenged her. Go now and leave your life of sin. She had received and been granted a pardon. She had received mercy. But with all rights and privileges, they come with responsibilities. We too, like the woman, have escaped. We've been granted a pardon. We have received divine mercy. So we live a life of responsibility to the one who saved us. All throughout the New Testament, the writers talk about live a life worthy of the calling that you've been given. We understand. We don't live good lives to be saved. Our life can never be good enough to earn our salvation. It's just not possible. We live a holy life. We live a worthy life because of what has been done for us. Because of the grace that we have received from God. That's why I'm not going to act like I used to act. That's why I'm not going to act like the rest of the world acts. I'm going to be different because of what I have received. Because of what God has done for me, for us. We don't want to flaunt the mercy and the grace we receive. Remember, that's the question out of Romans, that ridiculous question out of Romans. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, we know, we know. That's just about the dumbest question anybody could ever ask, right? But in the context of the early Christians and their understanding of grace, It's still dumb, but it makes a little sense. (laughs) If God's grace is good, then getting more of God's grace must be better. So maybe we ought to sin more so that we can get more grace. Well, no, that, I mean, I don't really care how you say it. It just doesn't make any sense. And that's why Paul said, God forbid, may it never be. What are you, dumb? He didn't say that. That's kind of what he said. That's what he was hinting at. Don't don't even think that way. We don't want to flaunt what we have been given and continue to sin and disobey God and disrespect him for what he has done for us. Now, some would say, or ask the question, didn't she get off easy? By the letter of the law, she should have been stoned. By the letter of the law, she did not get what she deserved. But neither do we. Neither do we. 
Remember way back when we were doing the parables and we we're doing the parables of the 11th hour worker, you know, the one who came in for one hour and got paid the same as the one who'd been working all day. And basically we said the main gripe and complaint is God isn't fair. And I told you then, thank God he's not fair. Thank God we don't get what we deserve. Yeah, she got grace and mercy. Just like you and I. And we ought to thank God for that. Like so many of the encounters that we have seen, this encounter with the woman caught in adultery is a microcosm of the gospel. The woman was a sinner caught in the very act. Jesus drew the attention to himself. He didn't condemn her, but he challenged her. Now, where do you see yourself in the story? I think there's maybe at times we might find ourselves as the three different peoples represented. We ought to understand that there have been times and there is a time in our life when we were the woman. We were sinners, condemned by law, but saved by the grace of God. There may be times when we feel ourselves as Jesus. Not that we can forgive people of their sins, but that we're compassionate. And that we help them to understand that, yes, they've made this mistake, but here's the remedy. And God wants to forgive you. And unfortunately, at least in my life, there have been times when I could relate to the Pharisees. Who don't see the potential. Who don't see a soul that needs to be saved but a sinner that needs to be condemned. And Jesus just comes along and says, that's just not right. That's just not right. Yeah, you need to live a better life. You need to, you need to go on and, and, and live your life. Leave that life of sin. But we are not here to condemn. If you're here this evening and there's some way that we can help or encourage you, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D. C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol dot com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 818- West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings 
at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.